Well, uh, about halfway through the day yesterday, uh, I decided uh, through Roger's help, maybe it's even his fault, that uh, we decided to uh, take a break from Hebrews 12 in order to address and celebrate communion with you this morning. I hope you remember from last week to have your elements uh, ready and before you. Uh, I imagine, though, that uh, if you're like me, you're probably scrambling to the fridge for your grape juice and, and the kitchen for your bread, and that's okay. Uh, but we are going to do that this morning. Uh, we felt it appropriate, anyhow, saying that uh, Passover week is upon us uh, with the Last Supper, Jesus' passion, and the resurrection next Sunday. So it just seemed like a good idea uh, to do it today. Uh, and, uh, and it wasn't, of course, originally my idea or Roger's. It was someone else's, and I'm, I'm glad for it. So today I'll be teaching on communion, and then we'll be celebrating it together now, as, as with most things, especially when it comes to like uh, the ordinances of the church, it's best to make it a teaching moment because really people should know uh, what they're doing and why they're doing before they do it. And that's certainly the case with communion. Uh, as the church has become less and less theological and uh, their faith rooted in the scriptures, I think many people are just left in the dark with what many of these things uh, are. And so we want to talk about it. And uh, if you are into the debate, uh, you're probably like me, understand that it's crazy how many views there are when it comes to communion, especially when the scriptures have so little to say about it. Uh, the scriptures happen to be very brief and to the point, whereas time and tradition has elaborated well beyond uh, the text of scripture. And whether it be out of sentiment or over-spiritualizing the text, I don't really know. Uh, our commitment, though, should be what to this to to should be to what the scriptures clearly state and what they truly imply, and every tradition should ultimately be checked by the scriptures, because not every tradition can be right. You know, only one of these many views could possibly be right, uh, and actually they could all be wrong, but they cannot all be right, saying that one view contradicts another. I can tell you this though, whenever you just follow the scriptures, you'll be just fine. But you'll always be wrong whenever you add or you take away from them. So today, my objective is not to compare and evaluate the various traditions or views on communion, but to teach the various passages of scripture and take them at face value. But of course, as I do that, some of the various uh, traditions will occasionally come out, but it's not my intention to critique them well, perhaps maybe just one of them, which we'll do. And when you compare all the views with scripture, you find that some views say way more than what the scriptures do. And then one view that I grew up in says, I believe, uh, too little. And, uh, and I don't think that's good. So my goal this morning is to just say what the scriptures say and leave it at that. So what I want to do is I want to begin by asking a number of questions, and then we'll look at the text of Scripture for the answers. So if you are taking notes, uh, here are the questions, and then I'll restate the questions one by one as we discuss them. The first one is, what are the names for communion? What are the various names for communion? The second one is, what is communion? The third is, what are the elements of communion? What is the significance of communion, or of the elements rather, number four? What is the significance of the elements? Number five, 
What are we doing when we take communion? What does it mean? And number six, how often should we take it? How often should we take it? And the last one is who should participate in it? Who should participate? Let's begin with our first question. What are the the names for communion? Now, this is important because uh, many of us use different terms, and some uh, people less informed than we are might think that we're talking about different things. And so we want to figure out what we're talking about. Paul provides actually three names for it. He says, communion of the blood and body of Christ, but for short, we say communion. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Another common name is the Lord's table. The Lord's table, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 21. And the third one is the Lord's supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. The Lord's supper. Uh, Some traditions call it the Eucharist, uh, which is really uh, more of the Catholic tradition. Others use it. And the word Eucharist uh, is uh, the Greek word for giving thanks. So as Jesus was distributing the, well, the bread anyway, he gave uh, eucharistasis, that is he gave thanks. Now I'm not sure that's precedence for calling the meal the Eucharist, but that's what the early church called it after the death of the apostles. Now obviously we certainly give thanks for the Lord's table. We're certainly thankful that we get to participate in this as God's people, and it really is a celebration. And it sounds kind of strange that communion is a well, the death of Christ is a celebration of life, and uh, we, can, we can celebrate because we know that he rose again. So there you have it. When you hear one of those titles, we are basically, basically talking about the same thing. So the next question is, what exactly is communion? In Luke 22, verse 19, and in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four and 25, we have these words of Jesus after he distributed the bread and the wine. It says, after he broke the bread, he said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Same thing after presenting the cup of wine. He said, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus told us to eat and to drink in remembrance of him. So communion, the Lord's Supper then, is a commemorative meal. It's, it's a memorial supper. I guess the funny thing is, as we typically have communion together in the morning, which makes it a commemorative breakfast. Be that as it may, according to the Lord, our eating and our drinking is commemorative in nature. Now, Paul provides some uh, additional insight from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17, saying, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul says that the the supper is the communion or participation of the blood and the body of Christ. But Paul also adds that while the people of Christ are many, we are one as the body of Christ and one when we partake of Christ. So we as the people of Christ... We, when we enter into communion, we partake of the table, we enjoy fellowship in Christ's death and fellowship with one another by way of these memorial elements. So in conclusion, 
We might say communion then is a meal by which we experience fellowship with Christ and one another in commemoration of Jesus' sacrifice. Next one. What are the elements? What is to be served at the Lord's table? In Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Jesus served bread and he served the fruit of the vine. The, the bread was matzah, which is unleavened bread. That is, it had no yeast in it for no leaven could be in any home in Israel during the Passover. Um, simply because leaven was a symbol of sin and pride. So these loaves of bread were flat. And the fruit of the vine was wine made from grapes. The text doesn't have to tell us that it was wine because we know what time of year it was when uh, Jesus did this. It was the same time of year as it is now and the grapes would have been harvested at least six months earlier. Grapes were harvested no later than the first week of November in Israel, but that was only in the northern uh, Golan Heights. The majority of all uh, grapes were harvested from August to October. So no one by March or April had fresh grapes or grape juice. Everything by this time was well fermented for the feast. So I guess a question has to come out of this. Does this mean that we should have wine for communion? Now, I know that it's important in some traditions to have wine, but there's really no prescription for wine in the scriptures, so it cannot be mandated with any biblical authority from anyone. Also, the Bible doesn't attribute anything symbolic to the alcohol being in or absent from the wine as it does with the yeast and the bread. Yeast symbolizes being puffed up with pride. It symbolizes sin. And so bread without yeast symbolizes humility and purity. But the Bible gives no symbolic significance to the presence or the absence of alcohol in the wine, so neither should we. So if you want to use wine for your communion, go ahead. Jesus and the apostles in the early church did, and wine has been used for the majority of church history by the majority of God's people. If Jesus drank it, there could be nothing wrong with it. If you don't like that, you'll have to take it up with him. But I can't condemn what Jesus and the apostles did and permitted. But for some of you, because of your past with alcohol, wine may be a bad idea. So for you, it might be best to have grape juice. Now at Calvary Chapel, we use grape juice just to avoid unnecessary issues. Not because we think there's something inherently evil about uh, or wrong with wine and the, uh, or alcohol in the wine. Of course, we condemn drunkenness because God does but not the use of wine within the boundaries set by scripture. I can't call sin what God does not condemn, neither can I permit what God condemns. So anyway, what did Jesus serve at his table? According to the text, Jesus served unleavened bread and he served wine. Next question, what's the significance of the elements? Or what's the nature of the bread and wine? Now, perhaps nothing has generated more disagreement and strife throughout church history than the answer to this question. All the weeping and gnashing of teeth is over two statements made by Jesus. Here they are. When he took the bread in Matthew 26, he said, this is my body, verse 26. And when he took the cup, he said, this is my blood, verse 28. But in Luke, we see this interesting variant where Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Luke 22, 20. So whatever does Jesus mean? Now historically there are five views 
which is amazing to me that anyone could arrive at five different conclusions from what is said in this singular context. How could a plain reading of the text yield so many opinions? I think sometimes it just boils down to a bunch of smart people who can't agree on anything. And, and really, we could spend all day on the five views, and I think we would just end up scratching our heads. So we'll just deal with the only two positions that I believe can be drawn from the text, but only one of which is reasonable. What Jesus said must either be taken literally or metaphorically, figuratively. So when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was either saying the bread and wine are literally my physical body and blood, and thus the eater would actually be consuming Jesus' physical body and his blood, or Jesus was speaking metaphorically, meaning that the bread and wine simply represent his body and blood. Uh, the other uh, views cannot be drawn from the language of the, test, the text itself, so I don't even think they're worthy of our time. So was Jesus speaking literally or metaphorically? Do the elements somehow become his actual body and blood for us to eat, or do they merely represent his body and blood? On other occasions, Jesus said that he was the light, the way, the vine, the door, the bread from heaven, the good shepherd, and a host of other things. Now imagine if Jesus was all those things literally, a vine, a door, a loaf of bread, and a shepherd, he would be fit for the freak show. But those who believe that the elements literally become the body and blood of Jesus, interestingly, do not believe that Jesus was speaking literally in those other instances. In fact, in John 6, Jesus told his audience that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to inherit eternal life. Well, as you can imagine, his Jewish audience didn't like that, and so they went away. But after the crowds dispersed, because they thought Jesus was being literal, he explained to his closest disciples that his words were not literal, saying, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, John 6, 63. In other words, eating his flesh wouldn't just be a gross violation of God's law, it would be a total waste of time. It would not impart life to the eater because he said the flesh profits nothing. It is the Holy Spirit who gives eternal life, and eternal life is not imparted by eating, but by believing. So if we take Jesus' words literally, it would be disgusting, it would be a violation of God's law because cannibalism was forbidden, as well as eating blood. It would require a serious inconsistency in our interpretation of Jesus' other claims. And no one in the upper room, the apostles, gave any indication at the time or laid in their epistles that Jesus was being literal. Which, trust me, it would have generated some discussion. But there's none. Also, the Passover meal, which they were celebrating, was filled with symbols that no one believes are to be taken literal. So even the surrounding context agrees with a symbolic interpretation and nothing more. The only reasonable alternative is to take Jesus' words the same way we do in those other passages. He was speaking metaphorically, figuratively, and symbolically. His body and his blood are represented by the bread and the wine. That is taking the language in its normal or its natural sense, 
as did the apostles that night around the table. And that's why Paul and the other apostles never had to explain an unnatural reading of the text in their letters to the churches. The Lord's Supper then commemorates, it memorializes what literally actually happened to Jesus at Calvary as it's symbolized by the bread and the wine. We are not literally eating Jesus or literally drinking his blood, thankfully. So let's move on. Next question, what are we doing when we eat at the table? Or what does it all mean? What, what is the significance of it all? Now, as I provide a number of answers to this question, I don't mean to be redundant. I just want to be, uh, I want to be abundantly clear. Jesus said, eat and drink in remembrance of me. At his table then, we are remembering Jesus' death. But there's more. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says that we participate in the blood and body of Jesus. We participate in his death. So at the Lord's table, we're remembering Jesus' death and we're participating in his death. Also in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul said that when we sup at the Lord's table, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. So at his table, we're remembering his death we're participating in his death, and we're proclaiming his death. The, the, the communion service is, is sort, of a, it's sort of an interesting proclamation of the gospel. And then Paul, as I quoted the end of that verse in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, he said we should do this until he comes. And then also in the gospels, Jesus said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus left his disciples with the anticipation of doing this again with them, but not until his kingdom. So when we eat at his table, we're remembering Jesus' death, we're participating in his death, we're proclaiming his death, and we're anticipating his return. And for that reason, the early church had a tradition because of this anticipation. Uh, they would conclude their communion service with Maranatha, which was an Aramaic phrase that meant, O Lord, come. The early church was on the constant lookout with eager anticipation of Christ's coming, as, as really every faithful bride does for her groom. And as we tend to the Lord's business here on earth, we too, like the early church, should be eagerly looking up for our redemption. But there's more to the dinner. Set we do, participating in it together as one, he says. Paul says, since there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Not only is there communion with Christ at his table, there is to be communion with one another as we share the meal together. The Lord's body, the church, should gather in unity and in fellowship at his table, not division and arguing. So again, when we eat at his table, we're remembering his death, participating in his death, proclaiming his death, anticipating his return, and we should be unifying as one. Now there's two more things about the supper. First, we mentioned earlier the Eucharist, that is that Jesus gave thanks. Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless. Just as Christ gave thanks for his father, uh, to his father before the meal, we too should show our gratitude for it. 
blessing it, understanding that what it represents is the very thing that saves us. This meal is a thanksgiving meal. And second, when the cup was presented at the meal, Jesus presented it as the blood of the new covenant. The meal then, by the nature of Christ's blood, is a covenantal meal. So one last time, when we eat at his table, we are remembering Jesus' death. We are participating in Jesus' death. We are proclaiming Jesus' death as well as anticipating his return, unifying as one, giving thanks together as the people of his covenant. That's what we should be doing when we gather at the Lord's table. Another question, how often should we partake of it? In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, Paul said, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, whenever you sup at the Lord's table. He doesn't actually prescribe a set schedule as to how often. He only prescribes what our understanding and practice should be. Now, because of what various traditions believe regarding the nature of communion, they believe communion should be every week. But because I see no biblical evidence for their supposition about the efficacy of communion, I don't see the need to sup every week. You can do it every week, that's fine. I just don't believe the scriptures tell us that we need to. All right, last question. Who should partake of communion? Who should partake of communion? Now first, when the blood is presented by Jesus, it's presented as the blood of the covenant. And so the supper is for the covenant people. And in the new covenant, people are not born into the covenant through natural generation and then receive the sign of the covenant through circumcision. In the new covenant, we're born into the covenant by regeneration of the Holy Spirit through faith. And so the covenant people are believers, which makes the Lord's Supper a supper for believers, for those who have become the children of God by faith, as John chapter 1 says. Also, Paul told the Corinthians, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let each man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That's 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-seven through 29. From this passage, we can gather that communion should only be available to those who can examine themselves rightly and discern the Lord's body, that is, accurately. The word discern means to discriminate. If someone is unable to do this, Paul says they're, un, they're, they're exposing themselves to judgment, being guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. For this reason, I believe that we should be very cautious about giving our children communion, our young children. The text does not say that a parent can examine the child or do the discerning for the child. The text says that each person should examine themselves. Each should be able to discern for themselves. If they can't do that, why would you let them take it? Now, at this point, I realize that some give their children and babies communion. If you did that as parents, I believe that's on you, but realize there's no biblical grounds for such a practice. There are traditions and there are theologians who endorse it, but there is nothing in the text of scripture to support it. To the contrary, there are passages that would just steer us away from it. So, there you have it. Um, there are other things to talk about, but I'll have to save that for our celebration. So, Let's gather around the table wherever you're at uh, as, as uh, we have this understanding from the scriptures 
And I'm going to take a minute to get uh, Roger and Hillary back here because as soon as we're done, are we, are we going to sing after or before I forget? Yeah. After, okay. So I'm taking somebody's seat here. So I will move and then we'll adjust the camera again. So get your communion elements out and, uh, and get ready. Now, because Jesus said, do this and remember to me, we want to talk about what we should be remembering in the elements. And because Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, we want to do just that. So let's, I'll, I'll read it to you. You've probably got your hands full. I'll be looking at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25. Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So again, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is a commemoration of Christ's atoning work for us. And his atonement included his body and his blood, which these elements symbolize. When Jesus took the bread, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Other translations say, this is my body which is for you, or given for you. Jesus offered up his body for our sake and in our place. To one, first, to receive the guilt of our sin, and second, to endure the punishment for our sin. God the Father transferred all of our guilt and sin to Jesus. He became guilty for every evil thing that we've done in word, thought, and deed, and then the punishment for our sins fell upon him. It appears that Jesus actually started to suffer the punishment for our sins the moment that he was arrested. And his suffering continued through his trial into his scourging and was fulfilled on the cross when he died. Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his body when he was on the cross. And Isaiah tells us that our punishment then fell upon him. Jesus received the guilt of our sins in his, own, in his body and that he yielded his body to the punishment that we deserved. So Jesus was judged in our place and for our sins. These are the things that Paul would instruct us to consider and to remember when the bread is before us. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to give thanks for his body and then we'll receive it together. And then after that, we'll move on to the cup. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to receive, Lord, the guilt of our sin and to receive the penalty of our sin in his body. Lord, that is the punishment that we deserved. We understand that from scripture, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus, vicariously, substitutionally, he took our place in punishment, and he died for us, Lord. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly yielded up your body, Lord, out of obedience to your Father and out of love for us. We thank you that you sacrificed yourself in our place. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will, grab your, your bread and, and uh, please eat. Jesus then took the cup and said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Just as the covenant at Mount Sinai was ratified in blood, so too this new and everlasting covenant is ratified uh, in, the blood, in, in blood. That's the blood of Christ. Just as we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews. But not only does the blood of Christ ratify the new covenant, it cleanses the sinner. In Hebrews 9.22, the author says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is, there is no forgiveness. There's, there's no removal of sins. Jesus gave his body over for our judgment, but he spilled his blood for our forgiveness. Now, the word forgiveness means to take away or to take out of the way. The sin that separates man from God and stirs his righteous wrath against us was taken out of the way by the blood of Christ, which reconciles the believer to God in a relationship of peace and of love. These are the things we must consider and remember when the cup is before us. So let's pray, and then we'll celebrate together with the cup. Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the the supper that we have. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that, uh, Lord, this this supper, the privilege of it, what it means and what uh, it, it points to, what it does for us now and in eternity, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you offered up your, your body and your blood, Lord, but specifically your blood that our sins might be washed away, that we might be uh, reconciled to the Father. And Lord, as, as we know that as your blood cleanses us, that your righteousness is then imputed to us and the Father declares us righteous in his sight and embraces us as his children. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please drink and then we'll worship together.